You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, kids, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area, on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, deep sea canyons, and maritime landscapes and artifacts. We have a two-part show today with two different topics, lots of science. And on the first half of the show, I'll talk with Dr. Jared Santora, a research scientist at the NOAA Fisheries Southwest Fisheries Science Center in Santa Cruz, California. And we'll discuss an article that Jared was the lead author on with several collaborators that looks at what what's called habitat compression and the ecosystem shifts between a warm ocean event, and record high whale entanglements. If you have seen humpback whales very close to shore along the coast of California in the last few years, this interview will be of great interest to you. And on the second half of the show, around 11.30, I'll be talking with Dr. Melinda Connors, a postdoctoral conservation biologist currently at State University of Stony Brook. And her research interests are conservation-focused and include understanding the effectiveness of marine protected areas for protecting mobile marine vertebrates, such as seabirds and whales, and understanding relative risk and resilience of these species to climate change. And we'll be talking with her about a recent study that is making some headlines about albatrosses that were outfitted with GPS trackers that were able to detect illegal fishing activities on the high seas. Super, super interesting. So I'm really excited to dive into some science, all of it very interesting and relevant to our areas here on the coast of California, but also out at sea, and share share some of this with you today. So stay with us in just a few moments. We'll be bringing Jared on the air. here on KWMR. And on this half of the show, we're talking a bit about uh, the last few years and some different conditions that set up on the ocean and some of the ecosystem effects that took place with this warm water event that we've called the blob. Starting in 2014, the North Pacific started experiencing a warm water phenomena that came to be known as the blob, which dominated the waters off the West Coast. A cascade of effects took place with various research and data being collected. Around that time as well, humpback whales started showing up really close to shore and were feeding actively and causing quite a show for whale watchers. 
Jared and his colleagues documented the conditions and events that took place and developed a new measure for ocean conditions called the Habitat Compression Index, which we'll find out what that is. And with me on the phone is Dr. Jared Santora. He's the lead author of this study. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Thanks for calling in today. We're just giving a little bit of a background about what was happening in 2014. And can you first just go over a little bit about what was this warm water event, the blob, and what were the drivers that really set it up starting, I guess, in 2014? Well, it's a—it's actually a marine heat wave. It was nicknamed the Blob, uh, I guess, for just uh, communicating out sort of this really uh, anomalous warming event that happened in the North Pacific. Uh, essentially, just long story short, it was a failure for the ocean conditions to cool down in the winter, and so the the warming event persisted for a number of years after that. And as you as you alluded to, uh, it caused a whole number of uh, uh, severe uh, impacts on the California current large marine ecosystem when it landed on off our coast. And when you say the California current large marine ecosystem, what would be the northern range and southern range of that area? Sure, it would be up to about the you know, the transition zone is around Vancouver Island off Canada down to um, you know the beginning of the Baja Peninsula off of Mexico. Okay. Very large stretch of water out to about 100 hundred miles offshore, a bit more than that some, in some cases, depending on the strength and intensity of the current. Okay. So what were some of the effects that were documented as that warming event set up? Well, there was, we've been monitoring the, the biodiversity and, and catches of, of midwater organisms like juvenile rockfish and squids and krill for, since 1983 with this one particular survey, uh, we started seeing some really early warning indicators um, of some increased subtropical species that were sort of uh, uh, moving in with the warmer uh, oceanic water further offshore, which is not typical of our cooler uh, upwelling ecosystem. But also, we, we, which was quite a surprise to us as well, is during this period was some of the highest uh, juvenile rockfish um, recruitment estimates that we've experienced since the early 80s. So there was a lot of strange creatures like argonauts and, and uh, other subtropical species that were being found off, off the coast, like also the red crabs. Um, but also there, it was a good time for some of our, um, our, uh, our, our coastal species as well, like I said, with the, with the rockfish species doing quite well. Um, but but most, I think, importantly, which really impacted um, the socioeconomics and you know aspects of the marine ecosystem, was this persistent harmful algal bloom, um, which was caused by naturally naturally occurring organism dinoflagellates that produced domoic acid, and that impacted the food web. It um, got into the got into the food web, and it, it causes. Uh, impacts to seals and um, seabirds, marine mammals, other fishes, and essentially it also impacted the, the Dungeness crab fishery as well by causing a, a delay in the fishery due to crab quality. And so that fishery had a, a very large large delay. Typically it opens in November, and they didn't open till March. So I know they took a big economic hit from that. But then they did. They were able to set up um, eventually when the domoic acid levels were considered safe for consumption of crab. And what took place at that point with setting up crab traps and and where they where they set them up and uh, following up with whale whale presence. 
Sure, yeah, that was a really serious and unprecedented delay that the fishery has never really experienced before um, due to that demolic acid contamination. And that happened in from November 2015 to about late March uh, to 2016. That, that Essentially, that five-month period, there was no vertical lines. With the, There were no traps being deployed. Um, from the fishery wasn't open. Um, and in that um, particular case, when it was open in April, it was unfortunate because there was a lot of, uh, you know, the, the humpback whale population and other whale populations on the West Coast have been growing um, substantially for the last few decades due to successful conservation acts that were put in the 60s and 70s. Um, essentially, we were still in this uh, stressed ecosystem state of this, you know, persistent warming water and altered food web um, that impacted the forage species that whales typically uh, feed on. And when all the gear was going out in, in April, uh, when the fishery was open, it was during peak timing when most of the, the humpback whale population is, is coming north and taking up their uh, spring-summer feeding grounds off the coast of California. And so that kind of put them in the crosshairs with this sort of very limited um, productive habitat for, you know, specifically for the amount of krill that's typically available. Um, so they had no other option, the whales, to go and switch to feed on anchovy. And for humpbacks that typically prey switch, they're, they're quite capable and happy to do so from feeding on krill to anchovy. And so in that particular case, it was, uh, it was further amplified with the distribution of, of crab gear and whales all being sort of, you know, peak timing going out in a particular, you know, few locations along our coast. And that um, helped you know, fuel the, the number of, of entanglements that, that started, uh, that really showed a strong peak in that year. Um, but the entanglement numbers also peaked the two years before that due to the change in the ecosystem itself due to climate change and climate variability associated with the marine heat wave. So those anchovies really set up in abundance near shore. Um, do they typically, do anchovy typically go offshore too, or is that more sardine that's typically more offshore? Because it seems like it was very narrow near shore. Sure. Uh, well, sardines, yeah, they're typically further offshore, and anchovies will actually extend offshore as well during, there's a classic hypothesis that describes this called the, the ocean basin model, and when the population increases, it expands uh, along our coast. Like the primary um, anchovy spawning grounds are within the Santa, um, the, the California Bight, and there's some places along uh, along the coast too that come out of the San, San Francisco uh, Bay. Um, but in general, this wasn't a strong anchovy population year. Not anything like we've been seeing the last two years. The anchovy populations now have really surged, you know, orders of magnitude um, higher than we've seen the last previous strong anchovy year, which was in 2004 and five. And in those years, the population, um, the, there's a distribution shift that goes north and that also increases offshore as, the, as we get more and more anchovy. But during these years, the blob years, uh, the the only anchovy that was available, and again, there was a major decline in krill available for whales to feed on, was this little pocket of anchovies that we detected in our midwater trawl surveys that were that was occurring within Monterey Bay and off Half Moon Bay, north of Point Reyes, and areas in, the, in, in coastal waters. 
And from my memory, there was just a lot of reports about crazy whale behavior feeding like right off of the piers near uh, Moss Landing and Monterey and, and Half Moon Bay. And people were paddling out to be near these whales, which is illegal and dangerous. And so there were a lot of concerns for that approach as well. But um, like you were talking about, so they had all their prey just happened to be co-located with Dungeness crab gear, which is typically considered a very good fishery for low bycatch and um, a well-managed fishery in terms of sustainable harvest and ongoing. And so that, that year, we had just an unprecedented amount of entanglements, right, with, with whales. And the whale response team was called quite a bit. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and as you were noting, the behavior of whales is a really critical aspect of this, and it reflects what they're feeding on. So when they're feeding on krill, they're a bit more dispersed. They're not in higher aggregations, flailing around and sort of leaping and, and, and splashing about uh, while they're actually feeding on krill. They tend to take longer, uh, deeper dives, and they just kind of open their mouths and sort of swim through the large krill swarms that are out usually along the outer shelf break or within submarine canyons. And when they're feeding on forage fish like anchovies that are schooling and they're trying to evade being eaten, and humpback whales, they work in groups. They do their, um, their, their bubble netting feeding behavior, and they are a bit more active, and they're splashing around. So we also think that their actual foraging behavior when they're feeding on fish might increase their susceptibility to getting entangled. Mm. Uh, yeah. For those tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Dr. Jared Santora, and we're talking about uh, the cascading effects of a marine heat wave here in the North Pacific and what took place with whales, food moving near shore, and setting up with uh, crab with crab gear and entanglements that resulted. So a lot of data being gathered through all this from very um, many different scientists and institutions, and it sounds like your paper kind of put it all together in terms of describing this cascading effect, as well as um, considering potentially some new tools that could be developed to help prescribe future management. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. I, yeah, this was a major synthesis that we've worked on for, for three years to put all the pieces together. Um, and it's, it's really about communicating ecosystem science and the value of ecosystem science. And you can't just look at like what the whale population is doing independently of the crab fishery, what's also happening with climate change, climate variability, and how it's impacting the, you know, our, our California current ecosystem that we share with these species. So we spent a lot of time carefully going through a variety of indicators on ocean and forage conditions and working closely with the Dungeness Crab uh, working, uh, Fishing Gear Whale Entanglement Working Group. Um, and that was hosted by the Ocean Protection Council um, and NOAA and a contribution of state and federal um, resources. Um, but we spent a lot of time working with this diverse stakeholder group composed of commercial recreational fishers, um, state and federal resource managers, and other scientists and conservationists all working together to figure out how we can utilize ecosystem science to develop a new program to mitigate entanglement risk so we can have thriving whale populations and thriving sustainable fishing communities because um, it can't be one or the other it has to be we have to work together so this paper really is um, 
you know, it, there's two parts of it. One is about sort of, you know, documenting the scientific facts that happened through here and what and the steps that we took to quanti- to quantify them. But it's also about you know communicating and working as a group to solve this solve this issue so we can reduce entanglements and 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 all and, and all these uh, fisheries. So the paper. Um, goes through all that, describes the communication strategy, describes this new management challenge of having this nexus of events of increased climate variability, which equals increased variability in our ecosystem, which ultimately results in an increased uncertainty. And this is really the new management challenge of this century as we have these successful um, conservation acts that went in place in the 60s and 70s to support um, thriving whale populations. We're now faced with trying to account for how climate change and variability is going to impact these highly capitalized fisheries and um, the whale populations and our fishing community. So we're trying to put it all together to to be better communicators and how ecosystem science can really benefit these really difficult decisions. And to that end, we developed a toolbox that tracks a variety of these factors, um, including uh, fishing activity, uh, number of entanglements, um, and ocean and and forage fish uh, aspects. And specifically, we developed a really new, exciting index called the Habitat Compression Index. And it's a really neat index that describes the spatial area of upwelling habitat through time. And we use a combination of oceanographic models and remote sensing like satellites to track the amount of habitat in any given time period now to provide that information to mitigate risk of entanglement and ultimately risk to this really important, valuable fishery. That's amazing that we have a tool like that now, um, considering such variability in this ecosystem. So it sounds like a really important tool. Who has access to this? Is this something that is online? And how is it used, I guess, throughout the year? Um, Or is this new? Is this kind of being phased in now as a new tool to work on? And I understand it'll probably continually evolve as well over time. Yeah, I mean, science is about evolution, so we're <laughs> we're always going back and looking and checking on this. But yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, there's a the tool is out there. Um, we're we're working on um, you know further evaluating it and bringing it online to benefit the working group that I mentioned earlier that are working hard and so they do a number of of risk assessments throughout the season to determine um, uh, risk to the fishery and risk to whales. And so we're hoping this new set of indicators can be can be used indefinitely into the future. Uh, a lot of this information is already found on the California Current Integrated Ecosystem Assessment uh, webpage. It's a, a page that's um, produced by, by NOAA, National Marine Fisheries Service. And a lot of these indicators are already on there. Um, the neat thing about this paper is it kind of pulls it all together into a one-stop shop. So we're also building a new website that will have this information. The transparent, it'll be transparent and will have all the data available for anyone that wants to look at it. And scientists and fishers alike love to look at data from my, from my experience <laughs> being involved with this working group. So we like to provide as much data as possible. That's great. Well, and we really appreciate the translation of the data for the rest of us that are not in the in the numbers every day because it helps to understand 
what's going on with these complex situations. And for me, I see this as a really good example of how we're preparing for being resilient in a, a very dynamically changing ocean ecosystem that is so valuable to so many animals, but also these communities and economies along the coast of California and the state of California and beyond. So it's really important to keep up this important science that brings it all together to make good decisions. Um, are there other tools or other aspects of this paper that you're hoping to see uh, built on in future years? Well, uh, there, yeah, there's a lot of exciting uh you know possibilities for for helping you know mitigate this new this new challenge um i th- i think we need to develop new tools so that we can be ahead of these quote uh, ecological surprises if you will i think we can see these things happening so the tools that we built i mean it's really unfortunate what happened with the entanglements and the and you know the hardships that the community went went to, but we can now see these perfect storm scenarios where we have persistent heat waves or an El Nino event. The scientific community is well aware of you know due to our, our really rich long time series, either from you know the the, the California Cooperative uh, Fisheries Investigation Survey, which has been going on for over seventy years now, and then the survey that I work with. Uh, out of the Santa Cruz Fisheries Ecology Division Lab, the Rockfish Recruitment and Ecosystem Survey, which is going on since 1983, we have really long time series, and we need to, de- you know, these are monitoring series that we can use to describing to the public the natural variability, but also what happens during these extreme events, so that we can be better prepared to see this happening. I want to be part of a solution that prevents these sort of you know, these perfect storm scenarios where we're going to have a really stressed ecosystem due to a heat wave. And, you know, we need to be ahead of it. So hopefully these tools that we've put together will allow us to potentially forecast a few months before these really extreme events land on our shore. Last question, just as we get to the half hour here. What are our ocean conditions looking like right now as we are in late January terms of temperature and the food web as we see it right now as compared to what's might be a bit more normal even though we don't really have a normal <laughs> sure yeah no, that's a great question in 2019 what was largely dominated we had another marine heat wave during that year but conditions really turned around come september and october last year where upwelling really kicked in we had a, a strong late um, uh, fall uh, good good upwelling winds blow along our coast, and sort of that really strengthened and cooled down and kept the marine heat wave off our coast. And as we've, we've moved into December and January, the outlook for spring at this time is an El Nino neutral period. Uh, and so we're not going to see you know, much impacts of, of, of an El Nino developing like we, we had a, a minor one last year. But right now, the surface can, ocean surface conditions for temperature look really good. They're cool. They look to be about average. Um, another important indicator that we track at this time of the year is called the North Pacific High, and it's you know this, the atmospheric atmospheric pressure cell that's off our coast, and that really sets um, the timing of the of the spring transition and the upwelling conditions from late winter into spring and summer. So we're looking at that now, and um, through this past January, 
the area and intensity of the North Pacific high looks really good. It looks really high and highest since it's been about 2013. So at this time, we're anticipating some you know, near average or slightly better than average cool upwelling conditions coming into spring. But again, we monitor this um, on a weekly basis and a monthly basis, so things can change. But you know, as of now, that's where we stand, and things are looking to be a bit better. Super interesting. During the heat wave. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all this. Is there a website that you'd recommend for people that might want to learn more or read up on this study? Oh, there's a lot of stuff out there. I would encourage folks that are interested to to read the paper. There's been a lot of great media coverage and web links associated with that. Uh, I would go to the California Current Integrated Ecosystem Assessment webpage, also known as the CCIEA. Uh, there's a lot of amazing resources on there, and you can also check out um, our um, IUS um, website as well for, like, Sencus, which is a, a, a great website that is hosted by uh, NOAA Fisheries, and, and, and there you can find a lot of information that's going on in the environment at this time, stuff in real-time monitoring or things that are being forecasted. Fantastic. Also, the NOAA Fisheries webpage has a great summary of this work with some links to that, and that's fisheries.noaa.gov. And look at the feature stories. That is where this has been described as well. So, Jared, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this work and also just for the integrated, integrated science that you're applying with so many collaborators to bring some real tools moving forward with being able to keep as many ecosystems and people happy as we move through this very different time in uh, ocean conditions with uh, climate change. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. Take care. Have a great afternoon. Bye-bye. We've been talking with Jared Santora, who is with NOAA Fisheries, and hearing a bit about the cascading effects of the warm water event that we had starting in 2014 and how it changed the prey moving near shore and humpback whales coming in to feed on that and having it co-located with Dungeness crab gear and very high entanglements. And a lot of response came out of that, which is so promising in terms of communication across all these different sectors with helping to find solutions to adapt to these changing conditions. So very exciting work to learn about from NOAA. And as you see humpback whales on the coast, um, outside their normal season in the summer, you can think a little bit more about what's going on there with this um, happening along the coast here. We are going to take a short break. Um, you are listening to KWMR in Point Reyes Station. This is Ocean Currents. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to transition to more of a seabird topic and seabird science with albatrosses and some really cool work that's happening uh, across our down in the Southern Ocean. We'll learn more in just a little bit. Stay with us. You're tuned here to KWMR and Point Reyes Station, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. And on this second half of the show, we're going to change gears a little bit and still talk about some really cool science happening out on the ocean through albatrosses. We hear in the waters offshore of Point Reyes throughout the Cordell and Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuaries, we have two 
typical common species of albatrosses that regularly visit these waters. A couple others come occasionally. Laysan and black-footed albatrosses, uh, which are amazingly considered small in size compared to other albatrosses in the southern ocean, like half the size practically, which is unbelievable because they're just huge. And with GPS tracking, we've learned that where birds spend their time when they're breeding and when they're not breeding, a new study led by Henry Weimerskirch from France, along with others, has been making headlines as it utilizes what we know about these far-ranging seabirds and considers how these birds could be natural law enforcement monitors out on the high seas. So I'm thrilled to welcome Melinda Connors. She is a postdoctoral conservation biologist currently located at State University of Stony Brook, did some work here in California, too, in Santa Cruz, and studies albatrosses. So I'm really looking forward to bringing Melinda on. Melinda, you are live on KWMR. Hi. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Thanks for calling in. Your name was mentioned in an article that I read, and I'm really glad we were able to connect because I love talking with people that are studying albatrosses and all the many aspects of them. Can you just give us a little bit about history, a little bit of background on what your research goals are and what you're working on right now? So my work broadly researches mobile marine predators such as albatross, but also sea turtles and whales and marine species that move really vast distances in the ocean. And what I'm really interested in is finding these sort of habitat animal connections and using that to understand how to best protect them. So in terms of designing marine protected areas or or marine reserves and, and things like that. So is that based on locations of these birds or based on what? On what? Or I guess on yeah. other, other animals as well. Yeah, so... So most of my work is focused on seabirds. Um, so, yeah, we we use tracking data. So you put a little biologging device on, on the seabird, and it goes about on its daily business. Um, and and we use those locations uh, to, to see not only where the birds are going, but what are the environmental characteristics like um, in terms of, of where they're going. So we try to link what's important to the, to the birds in terms of, of the habitat. And then once we understand the habitat characteristics that are important to these animals, then, then we can sort of design um, marine reserves around that. So I've done a lot of work with individual species, um, but currently my work more and more is interested in sort of synthesizing um, data sets uh, from, from different taxa. So um, combining data sets from, from seabirds and, and turtles and, and, and whales. Excellent. In terms of this recent study that we were communicating about, this is kind of turning it a little bit and also using these birds with trackers to tell us also what humans are doing out on the open ocean. Can you tell us a little bit about this study that uh, we were discussing by Henry Weimerskirch and what new information it has brought us to learn about albatrosses out at sea? Yeah, sure. So this this is a pretty... Fantastically clever study. Typically, biologging studies use yeah GPS or satellite tags. So you put a tag on an animal, and the the tag pings a location or records its information from from satellites, and and you can see where they went. Biologging technology in general keeps developing. You know, every year there's there's a there's a new development in in the technology, and so this technolo- technological development of this new tag type that the study's about addresses a very important question in, in conservation on the high seas. And that is, you know, how do, we, how do we measure illegal fishing activities on the high seas, which is important 
for the management and conservation of many species, including albatross, because they they have a risk at being uh, a bycott species in, in a lot of longline fisheries. So the problem with understanding where the illegal fishing activities are happening, or what even the level of this activity is, is that how do you how do you detect these fisheries? So boats have an identification system that can be seen from satellites. So that's one way of of identifying fishing boats. However, if you are a fishing boat and you're fishing illegally, you often will turn that AIS off so that you can't be identified. So that leads us to the problem of not being able to really understand even the extent of illegal fishing, especially out in international waters, which we often call the high seas. So what this study does is it developed a tag, so, so Henri Wammerskirch and, and others at um, the French National Center for Scientific Research, they worked with developers to develop a tag that has a radar detector. And so how this works is the bird goes about its business flying out into the sea, and if it comes into the vicinity of five kilometers of a ship, then it can detect the radar of that ship. So even if the ship's AIS signal or identification system is turned off, then the ship is still detected through this this radar detection. And so that sends a live data point to a satellite, which then comes to a computer, so you can almost watch remotely? Exactly, yeah. So there's also a, so there's a GPS tag on the tag as well to get fine-scale locational data of the bird and the ship, but also a satellite transmitter so that exactly the if the bird comes within five kilometers of a ship, the detects the radar, and that triggers the, the tag to send that data to satellite. And actually what, what these, this research group did was just really taking this to the next step. They developed this uh, framework called the Ocean Sentinel Framework, and that basically they developed a platform that could provide authorities immediate information on illegal fishing activity um, so that once the tag is downloaded, to, or uploaded to the software platform, that then notifies um, whatever sort of enforcement or regulatory um, organization uh, needs to be notified about the illegal fishing activity. Um, so they developed this sort of um, preliminary framework that, that could be adopted by other countries and, and organizations to, to monitor in real time illegal fishing activities. That's amazing. So what yeah. what birds were tagged? Um, what, what species of albatrosses and, and where? In this study, it was a wandering albatross, which they breed in the Southern Ocean. They are uh, the largest albatross species. So they their wingspan, span, I think it's approximately 12-foot wingspan. It's huge. I I, the albatross species I worked with predominantly were laysan and black-footed albatross that breed in the Hawaiian Islands, which is the species you see out there in California, and they have a wingspan about six feet, and they're huge. So you can imagine um, a bird twice that size is is a pretty sizable bird. So they can be equipped with larger tags than a lot of other species just because of their their size, and so they're they're good sort of yeah test case for <laughs> um, this type of technology because they can handle larger tags than than you know most other species of birds. And they also fly vast distances. So these guys you know, circumnavigate the uh, southern ocean waters. And I think there's some estimate here going around that I think it's in a lifetime of wandering albatross, they could fly the distance to the moon and back 10 times or something like that. They just Their entire design is to cruise wind on, on the ocean. So they, yeah, their design is 
just to maximize the energy gain from the wind off the ocean. So they have to do very little work to cruise around. So you can see this application are perfect because they cover these vast distances that, you know, no plane or train or automobile could could even compare to. Um, and they they do it pretty energetically efficiently. Um, and they get to regions that, that people can't. So they're just covering a ton of ground very efficiently in in bringing with them this sort of radar detective uh, or detection tag. It's so cool. Well, and the other yeah. thing about albatrosses is that we know that they do have an incredible sense of smell and they are attracted to fishing vessels because of the smell of fish waste or fish catch and often yeah. will be following these fishing ships. So it's just amazing. The brilliant study um, yeah. that really brings together all these things we know about albatrosses and the technology that is advancing to be able to start detecting some human activities out at sea. Now, do we know anything about potential concerns for this in terms of albatrosses, which, you know, some, some of these species are threatened and endangered and sometimes from bycatch by getting hooked on some of these these long line hooks that are deployed when when fishing. But are there any concerns from this type of new knowledge about these birds that might be following the ships and word getting back to these to these fishing ships and maybe hurting the birds? Right. There is some concern about potential retaliatory uh, actions from the fishermen themselves. Um, certainly we see that happen with wildlife. You know, you see sea lions getting shot or um, a lot of gray wolves getting shot um, in retaliation for depredation events. You know, so it's, there, you can, there are certain situations that set up an animosity um, that we would definitely want to avoid. Um, so I think there should be some caution, you know, if, if we were to move this forward at a larger scale. However, I think logistically it would be challenging for for that to have a real strong impact. Um, but there's a lot of nuances there. So some species, I think wandering albatross and say the short-tailed albatross in the North Pacific, they're they're a bit boat shy. So they tend to hang farther back from the boats, and they really wouldn't. There, I can't foresee there being a huge risk, you know, to getting shot off the boat or something like that. Other species are a little more boat-friendly, you could say. Um, so, you know, I think moving forward, it should be something on people's minds as to, you know, how to make sure that, that just it doesn't create this, this big animosity between fishermen and, and seabirds. But I don't, I don't see it as a huge risk because, you know, the birds are staying far away enough from the boat. There's, especially if you think about the Southern Ocean, there's huge waves. Yeah, big swells. So, Big swells. Just I'm just trying to think about this from the fisherman perspective. Trying to hang out on the side of the boat and shoot a flying bird while you're <laughs> going over these huge swells. It just doesn't seem super practical, and maybe even worth your ammunition. So this, what's the foraging range for wandering albatross? This seems like a geographic area potentially that was targeted. And are there other albatross species that they're considering learning more about or trying this out with to see what else they can find? Yeah. So wandering albatross, they kind of cover the entire Southern Ocean region. So they breed uh, around the globe in, in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, mostly in very high latitude polar or sub, subpolar regions. And then again, you know, they cover vast distances. So, so most of the Southern Ocean in high latitudes is covered by wandering albatross. Other species definitely are 
being considered. I know, um, so I was actually involved in some field work deploying these tags on Hawaiian albatross um, last year. And they're, they so also cover really vast distances if you consider the entire annual cycle of, of a lace and black-footed albatross. During their breeding season, they um, kind of stick around the Hawaiian Hawaiian Islands, but extending up to the transition zone, which is sort of halfway between Hawaii and Alaska. But other times of the year, they're, you know, they travel all the way over to California, as, as you know, or up to the Lucians or over to Japan. So they, they cover the North Pacific region. And they, they have interactions with long-lying vessels out in those waters as well. So they're certainly good candidates. And also the Galapagos albatross down in, in more tropical waters are also, I think, being considered. They There is a lot of fishing that goes on in that region, potentially illegal fishing. So I know um, there's some interest in, in targeting them as well. I think, I mean, albatross species in general, there's, there's, you know, I think 22 or 23 species all in all, um, and most of them would be pretty good candidates, but I, I'm sure, you know, the target wouldn't be some of these really highly critically endangered species. Other than, I would say, the North Atlantic, they cover a good fair amount of the global oceans. Yeah, there's there's... A lot in the South Atlantic, but, but none in the North Atlantic. So if you see an albatross in the North Atlantic, you're seeing something that really doesn't happen very often. you got a bird really blown off course. does happen occasionally. Yeah. So they can detect a fishing vessel with the radar, but it doesn't identify the vessel. Um, what, how, would, how would the further information get developed to, def- to press charges necessarily? I mean, it basically identifies where there might be illegal fishing happening happening, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily identify which boat. Um, what are some thoughts about how that the things could be refined to have more of an enforcement effect? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not, I'm not sure what is in the plan in terms of technological development that way. Certainly, you know, a lot of wildlife albatross species have carried cameras before, so that's another option, but that's, I could see that not really working out super well because the bird would have to get close to the ship and um, but what I can see really happening, I would say, over the next 10 years is this, this setup could be really good for the, sort of the short term. It gives us a, really, a much better idea in terms of, okay, what is the extent of illegal fishing in, in the global ocean? But I think thinking in terms of longer term technology, I could see this sort of heading more in terms of more to the direction of, say, autonomous gliders that, you know, could be very hard to detect that have a little bit more technological capability to pick up on on things like that, like identification of the boat. But I think, yeah, currently for an albatross, I'm not sure what else they could really add to the tag to do that, but I I don't see that as being sort of the long-term enforcement solution over the next, you know, 50 years or 100 years. I think it's probably going to go a little bit more towards the direction of, of autonomous gliders or drones. Um, but certainly it's it's a great first step to understanding um, the extent of this illegal fishing. Wow, that's so cool. It's just I'm just amazed because it really with the technology to even just track these things, track the birds out at sea feels so new still. And now we're able yeah. to really expand upon that with the technology on these tags and who knows what else will happen. Yeah. A lot of cool technology being developed for deployment on these large animals that are above the water and below the water, too, some of that tags Absolutely. on sharks yeah, and whales. It's amazing. I mean, you know, we're seeing tags now, or a lot of people are using tags to use these animals as sort of ocean sensors themselves. So 
if you have a large enough animal or a small enough tag, um, you can put on you know, salinity sensors, temperature sensors, um, wind um, devices or wind measurement devices. So, you know, these birds themselves are serving as, um, you know, an opportunity to collect things that are typically collected on, say, CDDs or, or you know, big, big at-sea vessel operations that drop off um, oceanographic devices into the waters are now basically being miniaturized to put on animals so that they can take ocean and, or environmental characteristics in, in real time, which is, which is really cool. The other sort of direction that we're headed is just getting these tags smaller and smaller and smaller so that we can put them out on more and more species because um, we're starting to get to know quite a bit about large animals such as whales and large seabirds like albatross. But some of these smaller species, um, say a tiny little storm petrel, I mean, it's much harder to get a good understanding of where they're going and, and what habitat is important to them because we don't have the technology that's small enough. I mean, it's, it's getting there for sure, but um, the smaller the tag, the more animals we can, we can learn about. Awesome. Well, I just, we have time for maybe one more question here, and I really, I want to kind of shift gears a teeny bit. Albatrosses are really these sentinels of the sea, and they really are an incredible opportunity to learn more about the ocean health as a whole because they're such predators and far-ranging and where they breed and where they feed. And you said you were out at the Hawaiian Islands, and we know that we have a Laysan albatross out there who's been named Wisdom, who is known to be 69 years old and still breeding. And I just think it's an amazing story of hope and resilience that that one bird has been able to tell. Can you just take maybe two minutes to talk a little bit about that? Because then we need to wrap up our show. Sure, yeah. I mean, yes, many seabird species, and especially albatross, are really long-lived. So when I was in Hawaii, I was working with, again, the two species of albatross, and I would get their the identification band number, look them up, and sometimes they would be older than I was. And that just, you know, instantly gives you just a huge amount of respect for, for these animals. Um, they've seen so much change in our oceans over their lifetimes that we can't even begin to fathom the kind of changes they've seen. On Turn Island, where I was at, that used to be Loran Station, halfway point between Midway and the main Hawaiian Island. So it was yeah, covered in, in, in military equipment and, and um, bunkhouses and things of that nature. Um, Midway, same thing, uh, military outpost. And so you have birds that were on Midway and saw it being converted into a station and now being converted back again to a wildlife refuge. So if you think about wisdom, she's seen all of this in her lifetime. Um, so it just goes to show we can learn so much from them if we just take the time to sit down and get to know them. And it's it's almost February, so I'm just thinking in terms of breeding right now. Chicks hatch around March time, or what would what's the timeline for chicks hatching? Yeah, yeah, February March. So the... pr- pretty soon she'll be out foraging again and bringing back yeah. to her chick. It's amazing for people. You need to look her up if you're listening and you're just learning about wisdom. You got to check her out. It's just an an, an awesome story. Absolutely. Melinda, thank you very much for calling in today and talking about this study and the work with these trackers for all these animals and learning more about how to help protect the ocean based on what the animals are telling us through their movements on on the water. So thank you for your work, and thanks for sharing it with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. Fun. I love talking about science and all the incredible things that scientists are doing out on the ocean and applying it towards conservation 
And it's, it's just really fun to share it with you all today. So I hope you enjoyed those interviews. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, and we're 11 to 12 o'clock. You can hear past episodes through the podcast, which is in iTunes. Ocean Currents podcast is in iTunes. I also have all our past shows up on the Cordell Bank website, cordellbank.noaa.gov. If you'd like to catch up on the 10, 11, 12 years of shows hosted here at KWMR. I love hearing from listeners, so if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov or jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for uh, listening. Enjoy the ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. Certainly out here in Point Reyes, we've had some big wind these last few days, and I know elephant seals are still on the beaches. A lot of moms are near shore or onshore and pupping. So definitely keep your eyes out and pay attention to posted signs about beach closures or places you can be with a dog, perhaps, too. We really want to help minimize any disturbance to those animals. But thanks again for listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Mm-hmm.